Welcome to the Purposes of College Education podcast. Today we'll be discussing the role of community, and to that end I'm joined by two students from the Yale community, E.J. Jarvis and Charlotte Burney. E.J. and Charlotte, would you like to introduce yourselves? Hi everyone, my name is E.J. Jarvis. I'm from Washington, D.C. I just recently graduated Yale with a degree in Urban Studies, and I am affiliated with Saybrook College. Hi, my name is Charlotte Burney, and I am now a rising junior at Yale. I'm studying ethics, politics, and economics, and I'm in Silliman College. Higher education is not a simple exchange between an individual teacher and a single student. Schools, colleges, and universities shape their students through their engagement in a community. When we speak of communities, we can mean anything from a very small group to even the whole of humanity. In this episode, we will explore to what extent education is a process of learning that community's notions of duty and responsibility. The philosopher John Dewey, the leading influence on progressive education in the United States, wrote, The school is primarily a social institution and that the child should be stimulated and controlled in his work through the life of the community. Although Dewey was talking about schools, colleges, in particular the residential colleges typical of American higher education, provide a special kind of community. Students inhabit them for four years of transition between adolescence and adulthood. American educators have used the term a community of learning to describe the function of such colleges. The first residential colleges were constructed at Oxford in the 13th century for students at the university there. The father of English poetry, Geoffrey Chaucer, paints a famous picture of a student at Oxford around that time who wears a threadbare cloak, rides an emaciated horse, and is rather underfed himself. So dedicated is the student to learning that when he gets some money from his friends, he spends it not on fine clothes or a new horse or even food for himself, but on books about Aristotle. And Chaucer concludes this unforgettable portrait of the Oxford student by saying, gladly would he learn and gladly teach. Even today, for those students able to attend a four-year residential college or university, the essential character of college life is not just the attention these institutions pay to the needs of the body, but also the sense of a group of friends and classmates who learn together and who teach one another. This is what social scientists call the peer effect, that students can, in the right environment, learn as much from their interactions with each other in student societies and team sports, and from intense late-night conversations as they do from their formal coursework. After hearing a bit from my Yale students, you will hear about Plato's theory of the role of the community in educating individuals, and about the ancient Indian sacred text, the Bhagavad Gita, which emphasizes education and the duties associated with one's place in the community. What are the main ways that you feel engaged in the Yale community? Yale can feel really big, but I also think that there are plenty of things that Yale does to make it just small enough that you really find your place in a community. And I think a big way that I feel engaged in the Yale community is through connecting with my teachers. I feel like it's been really important for me to go out of my way to make sure that I'm getting to know my teachers going to their office hours and feel connected to Yale through that. I would also say through my experience in acapella, it's a pretty big thing here at Yale, and I feel very connected both to other Yale students in that community and to Yale as a whole. When we perform for other groups or, you know, put on big shows, I really feel like a Yale student in those moments. EJ, what are the communities you've participated in? 
I would say the community that I most feel a part at Yale is uh, athletics. Athletics really brings people together, and during our basketball season, I really tried my best to make sure that the student body and even the New Haven community came to our games. I think it's a great way to have fun and show support for the university. So Charlotte, have you been to many athletic events in your time at Yale so far? Yes, definitely. Athletics are a really powerful way of building community. It's so much fun to go with friends. And it's really fun to suddenly be cheering on people you actually know as to just people on screens. One of the most influential books about the theory of education and about much else is Plato's Republic. When people talk about the great books, this is the greatest of them. This is a book about the question of justice, about how a society should be ordered, but it also touches on human problems, such as the nature of the soul. It asks, what is the right role of the arts, especially poetry or literature and music, in education and in life? And it explores basic ethical questions like, what do we owe to one another? So it's a book in a broad sense about politics. The word republic refers to the state or government. With Plato, we will focus on how the individual's education relates to the community. We generally look at community as one of those positive words, but in the Republic, we will also see some of the more troubling dimensions of community and the demands that it places on individuals. In fact, Plato suggests that sometimes education can separate us from our community. As we already saw with Aristotle, in ancient Greece, by far the most important form of community was the city-state. But of course, today, we belong to many different kinds of communities of varying sizes and importance. Plato was born at the beginning of the Peloponnesian War, a war between democratic Athens and oligarchic Sparta, which lasted for around 30 years. By the time he was a young adult, Athens had lost to Sparta. Now, Sparta had a more authoritarian political constitution, and as a result of this loss in war, there was some sense of a crisis of legitimacy for the democratic system. What's wrong with us that we lost the war? Is it somehow connected to democracy? Plato was one of those people coming from an aristocratic background who was somewhat skeptical of democracy. He, he was the student of Socrates, but he was also the first person to found something like a modern university, the academy, which was a sort of a debating society. In the Republic, Plato shows Socrates having debates with a number of other Athenians about the nature of justice, the city, the soul, and education. His style of debate, in which he leads his interlocutors along a path of reasoning to a surprising conclusion, inspired what we today call the Socratic method, which is a form of instruction often used in law schools. In many cases, it's difficult to tell whether Socrates is making an argument because he believes what he is saying, or whether he's being deliberately provocative. And when we read Plato, we have to keep this possibility in mind. In fact, he models an idea of education as a kind of conversation within a community in which the exploration of competing viewpoints leads us all closer to truth. Now, the ideal republic that Plato and Socrates outline has some very authoritarian elements and also a certain similarity to later communism. But it's unclear whether either Socrates or Plato really believed in the government having as much authority as they suggest in this supposedly ideal city. In the Republic, Plato develops a theory of how the ruling class should be educated that involves subjugation of most or all individual desires to the needs of the city. The first important feature of the ruling class in the Republic is what I refer to as communism. In the ideal society, the rulers will have no private property. Socrates says that the basic problem with having a ruling class that has private property is that they'll have an incentive to pass on the private property to their children. 
and to rule the society in a way that will benefit their children rather than society as a whole. And of course, we still see this today where people work hard to pass their privileges on to their descendants. But Plato wanted the ruling class to be dedicated fully to the common good of all and not just to their own families. Second, Plato argues for a communal education. This is where the Spartan influence is strong. If you've ever seen the old Star Trek series, the Spartans were a little bit like the Borg. They lived in a very communal way. They were educated to be warriors from very early on. The men always ate dinner together in groups. And Plato and other commentators thought that that was part of why the Spartans had won the war. They were basically just tougher. Throughout later history, you'll see that democratic nations often worry that they will be weaker than their authoritarian counterparts. And one of the things that the authoritarian alternatives to democracy have, and this can be on the left-wing communist side or the right-wing authoritarians like the fascists, is this strong sense of communal connection and putting the nation, or in the case of communism, the working class, above all else. Interestingly, and not so much like Sparta, Socrates proposes that women should have exactly the same education as men. This was a very, very unusual idea in ancient Greece. And that's one of the reasons that people think that he may have been, in a sense, maybe not joking, but being deliberately provocative. The translator and philosopher Alan Bloom has suggested that Plato wanted the masculine qualities of the Spartans, represented by the communal living, the lack of private property, and so on, but he also wants some of these civilizing qualities associated with Athens and what we might call liberal education. And Bloom's view, anyway, is that Plato wants the women to, in some sense, soften, I know this might seem like a sexist way of saying it, or to balance the warlike culture that would otherwise predominate among the rulers. Finally, in this ideal city, the children will be reared in common and there will be no nuclear families. If you've read another science fiction work, Aldous Huxley's Brave New World, it's a bit along those lines. People breed in order to support the city and not out of personal desire. There also you see a sort of tension that's always present in Plato. In modern liberal democracies, we tend to believe in a strong distinction between public duties and private life. Educational institutions often do regulate the private life as well as the public life of their students, but once we're adults, we tend to expect to have our own household, a certain degree of privacy within that household, and freedom of speech, religion, assembly, choice, and so forth. But Plato has a very strong sense that there's a tension between private life and public duty, and so he essentially wants to abolish private life. Or at least, so he says. Again, it may be somewhat ironic. He wants to get rid of private property. He doesn't want people to have their own children. Everybody will be raised community. There will be no husbands and wives, and so on. You won't even eat dinner on your own. Now, whatever you think of this mode of education, it's interesting that he has a strong sense of the role of dedication to the community and duty to the republic among his ruling class. It's also notable that in some respects, the education that he describes is very similar to that provided today for elite students at residential colleges in the United States, at least insofar as there's a strong emphasis on communal living, on dialogue, and on the sense of all being part of one community. Plato imagines a model of community education in which the rulers are taught to make the city their highest priority. This question of how the educated relate to the rest of society is, of course, highly important for us today. So do you think your Yale education has changed the way you relate to your communities like your hometowns of New York or Washington, Charlotte? Definitely. I think that one thing that's been really special about Yale is how I've noticed the way in which people really like to 
talk about what we're learning outside of a class environment and how there is this general excitement to learn. Um, And I feel like I've always been someone who, you know, will call my mom and tell her about what I learned in a certain class, even if she has no idea what I'm saying. And that was something that I experienced in the dorm rooms, in the courtyards of Yale, the fact that someone would leave their philosophy class and come say, here's what we learned. I find this really interesting and I'd love to talk about it. And I would say that that is a tendency that I didn't really have almost the courage to in high school. And EJ, do you feel like your relationship to your community of Washington, D.C. has changed? I would say my community to D.C. was very strong in high school. I like to say I was a Washington, D.C. nerd. I like to know all the, the history, the streets, the culture, just because it's something that I found fascinating in high school. And when I came to college, I actually used that fascination to relate to what we were learning in school. And Eventually, as my time went on and the classes got a little bit more specific to my major of urban studies, I started to narrow in on what I wanted to focus on in D.C. and actually ended up writing my thesis about Washington, D.C.'s gentrification. The thesis was titled HOME, and HOME was an acronym for how our mindsets evolve. It was an oral history of one of my very close relatives, Gretchen Wharton, and I interviewed her about her experience of growing up in Shaw. She had lived on the same block her entire life, and she's seen the transformation from the 1940s to present day uh, of one of the most gentrified area codes in the nation. And that sentence in itself is very powerful because not many people have their own personal story about how their neighborhood has gentrified so rapidly. Plato focuses on one's duties to the city-state in ancient Greece, which was the size of a small city today. And for a citizen of a state like Athens, one's highest duty was to the city. But where you live might not always dictate your highest duty. The classic Hindu text, the Bhagavad Gita, offers an alternative view of duty. Specifically, this religious poem offers an important glimpse into the ancient Indian notion of dharma. I chose to highlight this text because it played a crucial role in shaping modern ideas about the relationship between the individual and the community. The second section, or teaching, of this poem is a crucial text in Hindu religious education. In the story, the god Krishna explains some of the basic philosophical concepts of Hinduism to the warrior hero Arjuna. Ultimately, this text demonstrates how to educate a leader to do his or her duty to the community. The themes I want you to take away from the Bhagavad Gita are duty, discipline, and action. The Bhagavad Gita is a relatively small part of the very long epic, the Mahabharata, whose title means something akin to Great India. If you visit India, you can see many sculptures and paintings representing stories from this epic, which played a similar role in Indian culture to that of Homer's The Iliad and The Odyssey in ancient Greece, with the difference that the Hindu gods are still worshipped today, whereas the Greek gods are now just considered mythology. The Bhagavad Gita, like many epics, is a founding text of a culture. And just as Greeks like Aristotle and Plato look back to Homer for the basis of their community, Hinduism looks back to the Mahabharata and the Ramayana, which is the other great Indian epic. Not all cultures have epics. There are other ways of binding a culture, but an epic is one of those ways, and it tends to establish the values by which later members of the community define themselves or against which they sometimes rebel. Like the Western epics, the Mahabharata was probably largely composed orally, but then written down at a certain point, and the portion known as the Bhagavad Gita 
was composed around the 2nd century BCE. Its title means Divine Song. The epic turns on the battle between the five Pandava brothers, who represent the forces of order and justice, and the 100 Kaurava brothers, who are cousins of the Pandavas, but who represent chaos and disorder. At the beginning of the Bhagavad Gita, the third Pandava brother, Arjuna, is about to go into battle against his cousins, but he's very reluctant to fight them. Arjuna's charioteer reveals to him that he's not just your average charioteer, but is in fact the god Krishna, who has come to tell him why he must fight and to give him an education in Hindu philosophy. In the beautiful paintings of the various schools of Indian art, Krishna is always represented in blue. He typically appears on the chariot in the pose of a god who is instructing his disciple, not holding the reins of the horses. You don't necessarily need to believe in the religious background of the Hindu cycle of rebirth to find that the philosophical discussions of duty, discipline, and action in this poem remain relevant to modern ethics and our relationship to our community. Of course, each of these words is an English translation of a Sanskrit word. The first of them, duty, is dharma in Sanskrit. Duty is, of course, a very important word in the West, too. In Greek, the word for duty is deon. In the Bhagavad Gita, duty is a sacred responsibility that comes down from the gods. Almost by definition, a duty is something you do because you think you should do it, and not because you want to do it. If you want to do it, it might be some kind of pleasure or joy. But if you do it even though you don't really enjoy it, then that's a duty. And Krishna tells Arjuna, If you fail to wage this war of sacred duty, you will abandon your own duty and fame only to gain evil. Now there's an element here that seems distinctive to the Bhagavad Gita and maybe to Hinduism in a way, and that's very relevant to the theory of action that we'll come to a little later in the poem. When Krishna says, Therefore, Arjuna, stand up and resolve to fight the battle, that could easily come out of a Western poem. But what seems distinctively Hindu is his comment, impartial to joy and suffering, gain and loss, victory and defeat. Arm yourself for the battle, lest you fall into evil. Now this notion of impartiality is interesting. Krishna emphasizes that it's not the outcome that matters. Rather, it's your impartial attitude, your willingness to face whatever comes. It seems to me there's a connection between his notion of detachment from the results of the action and the cycle of rebirth the belief that the self being constantly reborn, which implies that you have to have a certain detachment from what's in this world because it's basically an illusion. This relates to another Hindu concept that's also important to Buddhism, maya, which is their word for illusion, the idea that the things that we are experiencing now are only an illusion and that you have to get beyond them. This notion of the world as illusion leads to a distinctive attitude to the question of action in Hinduism. The Sanskrit word for action is karma. In the West today, we tend to think of karma as being a sort of a retribution or just desserts, like a kind of cosmic irony, in fact. In Sanskrit, though, the word means action. And even though this is almost 2,000 years before Sir Isaac Newton, you might think of Newton's third law of motion, which is that for every action, there's an equal and opposite reaction. In a philosophical sense, karma means that when you act, your action has an effect on the world. Hinduism teaches, though, that you should not be unduly concerned with the results of your actions, because those are beyond your control. And in one of the most famous passages of the Bhagavad Gita, Krishna tells Arjuna, Be intent on action, not on the fruits of action. Avoid attraction to the fruits and attachment to inaction. Arjuna, action is far inferior to the discipline of understanding. 
So avoid worrying about what's going to happen as a result of your action, but also avoid attachment to inaction. You need to act anyway, even though you don't know what the consequences will be. The notion of action here is that you are called upon to act. Don't worry about what's going to come of it, whether you're going to get a reward or not. You act because it's your duty to act. But at the same time, you have to avoid that temptation not to act. And you could say in Arjuna's case that that's a perfectly reasonable temptation. After all, he's saying he doesn't want to kill his cousins no matter how evil they are. But in order to understand the poem, you have to accept the premise that it's his duty to go and kill his cousins. This notion of doing the right action, not worrying about the consequences, which can be found in various cultures, is particularly central to Hinduism, and it would later become an important part of theories about justice in the West. The final Sanskrit word that I'll introduce in this lesson is yoga or discipline. Now, of course, we think immediately in English about yoga as a set of physical exercises that may have a spiritual dimension, and I, I've tried yoga. I'm not very good at it. But the words relates to the notion of discipline in both a spiritual and a physical sense. The Sanskrit word yoga is actually related to our word yoke, like the yoke that you attach to an ox to get it to pull your cart. It's an idea of a binding, and in a way, another sense of discipline as punishment is also connected to binding. You could say that all these words are about self-control, and thus about one aspect of education. So the connection between duty action and discipline in these passages from the Bhagavad Gita is that discipline consists not so much in doing the right kinds of acts or even being the right kind of person, but in following through according to what duty tells you to do. Education consists in learning the discipline to follow your duty. This notion of being detached from the fruits of your actions in turn plays an important role in the notions of civil disobedience and passive resistance that inspired many of the liberation movements of the modern world. More broadly, I think the situation of Arjuna in the Bhagavad Gita calls attention to the role of conflicting duties. The question is, what do I do if my duty to the gods conflicts with other duties, such as my duties to the, my family or to my community or to the state? And in the Bhagavad Gita, it's clear that the duty to the gods is the highest one. Now, I don't think you've ever had to go to war with members of your family, but have you ever faced a tough decision where you felt that there were conflicting duties that you had to choose between, Charlotte? Definitely. I think the one that comes to mind is very recent, which is that I had a family commitment of my cousin's bat mitzvah the same day as the biggest concert for my a cappella group, the one that we spend all year prepping for. Um, and as a member of my family, I had this commitment to go and participate. And I also felt like as a member of my group, I, you know, had a duty to go and sing. And um, that was a really challenging decision for me. And, you know, I ultimately decided that I had to prioritize the the duty that I had and had, you know, spent months and months rehearsing for of going to my concert. Uh, but that was definitely a moment of conflicting duties. We have seen in the ancient texts, the Republic and the Bhagavad Gita, theories of the individual's duties to the city or to the community or to the gods, and systems of education designed to reinforce that notion of duty. Earlier, I shared John Dewey's idea that the role of the school is to help the individual integrate into a community. As we saw in Plato, communal education can be a very effective way of creating bonds among students, and also what we call in modern educational theory, the peer effect, 
where you learn from others of roughly your own age but of diverse backgrounds. Plato raises the question of what duty we owe to the community, and we saw that duty also plays an important role in Hindu philosophy in the poem The Bhagavad Gita, in which sacred duty actually transcends the duty you might have, for example, to your family members. The ethical frameworks we've seen here are closely related to a modern theory called deontological ethics, that is, ethics based on duty. Deon is the Greek word for duty. The most famous statement of deontological ethics is the 18th century German philosopher Immanuel Kant's categorical imperative, in which he emphasizes the universalistic nature of duty. Now, Kant did not emphasize duty to one's particular community. Instead, he focused on a notion of duty to humanity and to reason. Throughout history, education has tended to lead people to question their inherited notions of duty and of community. In general, we tend to think of community and duty as positive words, but are they always positive? Some people may seek separation from, from the community or find that their community's notions of duty are oppressive. At its best, higher education works beyond the classroom, promoting compromise over unilateral decision-making and promoting a recognition of others' humanity and worth over the primacy of a single student's individual needs. But at its worst, a community can restrict individual growth or impose pressures towards conformity. The special type of community that is a college or university leaves room for much individual variation and for students to determine their own desired relationships to the communities they participate in. I thought it would be fun to conclude this episode with my students' thoughts on what the Yale community means to them, with Charlotte halfway through her time at college and EJ having just graduated. The communities that you meet throughout your four years at Yale, um, whether you're on or off campus, a part of a sports team or a cappella group, those are communities that you'll have for your entire life. And those are communities that I will forever hold near to my heart. Yale is probably the biggest part of my identity as an entire person right now. This podcast was produced by Belinda Platt with the help of research associate Lizzie Krontiris and sound engineer Ryan McAvoy. I'd like to thank my guests, E.J. Jarvis and Charlotte Burney. Join us again next time to continue our exploration of community.